Pastor John will be preaching from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms liberally to the people, and prayed constantly to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those that awaited on him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and coming near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became hungry and desired something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heaven opened and something descending like a great sheet let down by four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This story about Cornelius and Peter has a lot to say about the resurgent racism on the university campus. It has a lot to say about our inveterate bent on ethnocentrism and looking down on other ethnic groups and seeing them as unclean and common and corrupt. It has a lot to say about our evangelical commitment to world evangelization and whether or not we are supposed to try to get the gospel to every unreached people group where there might be some Corneliuses prepared or whether we don't need to do that. This is a really relevant text, and I hope that you will engage your mind right now and your prayers to help me unpack the truth of this text and apply it in ways that will turn some of you back from sin and save your soul. And refine the commitment that others of you already have to Jesus Christ and make you a brighter light and a more savory salt in the earth. And may the Lord make us mighty in missions at Bethlehem. Let's pray for a moment. Oh, Lord God, there is a satanic evil abroad in our land that is very evil these days as racism shows its ugly head in new manifestations of white supremacy and other kinds of ugly groups. 
There is in every human heart a bent on feeling superior, like the world revolves around us and our way and our color and our culture and our nation that is evil. And there is a constant bent towards lethargy that is looking for rationalizations that says missions will happen without us. Or maybe it isn't even necessary anyway. And I pray against these three great evils this morning. And I pray that the power of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit will undo them in our lives. And that we will be the salt of the earth and the light of all the world. Of every color and every ethnic group and every unreached people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Tom couldn't read the whole story, so let me tell you the whole story in a nutshell. Uh, Cornelius is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He's in Caesarea. He's never heard the gospel. And he is supposedly, it says so right in the text, a God-fearing man, doing alms, praying. And an angel comes and says, God has heard your prayers. Your alms are like a memorial before him in heaven. Send for a man named Peter in Joppa. About the same time in Joppa, God is doing the miracle of getting the two ready for each other. And he sends this in a vision. Peter's up there to pray at noon. We all ought to pray at noon. That's what came to my mind as Tom was reading the text. I hadn't thought about that before. Why was he praying at noon? It's a good time to pray. He's praying at noon. The Holy Spirit comes down in a vision and shows him these reptiles and birds and animals all jumbled up in this sheet and says, eat. Now, these animals are unclean, most of them, against the law in the Old Testament. Don't eat that kind of animal. You're Jew. You're separate from the unclean nations. And so keep yourself pure and separate and be a light to the nations here in Jerusalem by keeping yourself pure and clean. Don't eat those. And so Peter says, I mean, eat, eat. Peter says, I'm not going to eat those when they say eat. The heavenly voice says eat. And then the heavenly voice comes back and says, and I think the tone of voice might have changed a little bit, and says, don't you call uncommon, don't you call common or unclean what I have cleansed. And the doorbell rings, or the knock happens. And uh, there are three unclean Gentiles. The vision happened three times, there are three unclean Gentiles. And he goes down and they say, come to Cornelius, the Gentile. And Peter gets the message. Okay, I've got it. I understand. And he goes, he preaches, they repent, the Holy Spirit falls on them. I'll talk about that in three weeks. Now, this is a remarkable story. The meaning of that vision is twofold. He's got two levels. The most obvious one is... Since Jesus, the Messiah, has come and the decisive cleansing sacrifice has been offered and the Great Commission has been given to get out of Jerusalem and go to all those unreached, unclean peoples, I am now declaring all foods clean and those old ceremonial laws are over. Their purpose for a period in history is at an end. They were right and good while they lived, while they existed. You live. Now they're done. And so they're not valid anymore. And the second level of the meaning right under here is, and all those people that used to eat that way, 
Yuck! You're not supposed to think about it like that anymore. Don't you call those people unclean. Don't you call those people common anymore. Don't you let any ethnic, racial, cultural, physical distinctives be the means by which you eliminate anybody from the preaching of the gospel and the association of your life. Don't think that way anymore. It's over. Jesus has made a difference. It's a new day of mission and love and association and empathy and compassion. Get out of Jerusalem now and you get over that. That's what's happening in that vision, I think. So Peter goes and Peter preaches. God saves. Now, I have two questions about this story this morning. The first one is, was Cornelius already saved before Peter preached the gospel to him? And the second question is based on the answer to that one and brings us face to face with the racism on the university campus these days. Face to face with the ethnocentrism in every human heart and face to face with whether or not world evangelization by Bethlehem and other churches is really necessary. But let me wait on the second question and just go to the first. Let me show you why the first question is so pressing. It's pressing because of verses 34 and 35 in chapter 10. Because these verses look like, on the face of it, look like Cornelius is already saved. Before he hears the gospel and knows about Jesus. Peter begins his sermon to Cornelius in his household. Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality now, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And now we read back in chapter 10, verses 2, 3, Cornelius feared the Lord. He prayed. He did alms. He was respected among the Jews. He fits that category. So he's accepted by God. He's acceptable by God. So my question is, does that mean that he's saved? Born again, justified, reconciled to God, no more wrath, sins forgiven, going to heaven. Is that what that verse means? Looks like it. A lot of people have drawn that conclusion. A lot of people think that world evangelization is not to get the gospel to God-fearing pagans so they can be saved, but to tell them how they got saved, namely through Jesus without knowing it. Christians incognito all over the world. A lot of people who believe that today. This is a good verse to support that, they would say. Is it? Is it? That's my question. I have four reasons for a negative answer. No, verse 35 is not teaching that Cornelius was already saved, justified, reconciled, heaven bound. Here are my four reasons. Number one, you want to look at these texts with me, you can. Acts 11, verse 14. Peter has been sort of called to account by the other apostles for getting his hands dirty in the Gentile mission here. And uh, therefore, Peter is telling them the story of what happened. And in verses 13 and 14 of Acts 11, he says this. 
He told us how Cornelius told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon called Peter. This is what the angel is saying now. Send to Joppa, get Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Now, that's a real important verse. Two things. Notice, it's real obvious, but notice the obvious. The message is essential. You will hear a message from this man if you send for him. And that message will be the means by which you get saved. Notice the second thing, the tense of the verb, save. This is real clear in the Greek and in the English. This message by which you will be saved. So the angel is standing here talking to Cornelius and saying, if you go down there and get Peter and listen to his message, by that message you will be saved. Now that's just the opposite of people who say what missionaries are supposed to do is go out and tell people how they're already saved. You are already you are already saved by virtue of your faithful, God-fearing, doing the best you can according to the light that you have. There aren't many people like that out there, but if you find one, many say, just tell them how they got saved. Namely, Jesus died for them, and without knowing it, that blood has been applied to them because they feared God. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that if you sin and hear the message and believe, you will be saved. So the angel is talking to an unsaved Cornelius. And telling him how he can get saved. I think that's why the whole story is here building this remarkable, miraculous coincidence of these two people getting angelic visitations so they can get together. The whole point of the story is they need to get together. Something big's at stake here. Salvation's at stake and God mercifully is making a connection. Missions. That's reason number one. Why I don't think verse 35 means that Cornelius was already saved. Number two, reason number two. Uh, in chapter 10, at the end of his sermon in verse 43, Peter, having preached now the gospel, the way of salvation through Christ, closes his sermon in verse 43 like this to Cornelius. To him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. End of sermon. Salvation cannot happen without forgiveness of sins. It is, by and large, forgiveness of sins. Nobody is saved with their sins being held against them. That's the opposite of salvation. If God still holds my sins against me, I'm not saved. Salvation is getting rid of my sin problem, getting them off, being forgiven, having them take away, no more condemnation. And at the end of this sermon, speaking to a God-fearing Cornelius, Peter looks him in the eye and says, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He did not say, you have forgiveness. And I'm just coming to tell you where it came from. He's saying belief is the channel. Belief is the channel. Now believe, Cornelius, and all your household. Reason number three of why verse 35 does not mean that Cornelius is already saved. All through this book, 
preaching is happening toward the most devout, the most God-fearing, the most upright and morally clean people that there were, namely the Jews. And every sermon terminates on this. Repent and believe and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And therefore, the point of the book is not that people who are devout and already have some access to God, which the Jews did through the Old Testament, are by virtue of that access and that God-fearing saved. They aren't. If the Jews, who had the most advantages of all the people in the world to know God, if they had religious processes that had been put in place by God, not by their own imaginations, if those very Jews all through Jerusalem needed to hear the message about Jesus in order to be saved, how much more do we in America and do all people living in all the people groups of the world need to hear about Jesus? In fact, this is made even more clear by the fact that in chapter 2, where the Jews are gathered in Jerusalem, they're described as devout men from all over the world. Devout. Same idea, same word used as uh, in uh, chapter 10, where Cornelius is described as a devout man who feared God and gave alms. So here you've got all these Jews who are devout, God-fearing, keeping their lives morally clean. And here you have Cornelius... And the book of Acts says they need to hear the gospel. They need to believe in Jesus, the way preparer, the, the sin bearer. Because by belief in Jesus, sins are removed. Sins are forgiven. And therefore, the whole point of the book assumes that if the most devout, the most uh, God-fearing, the most moral people, namely the Jews need to hear about Jesus and believe how much more people like Cornelius and tens of thousands of others who are farther than Cornelius was from the truth. That's argument number three. Finally, number four, why I don't think verse 35 means that Cornelius was already saved, comes from chapter 11 again, verse 18. The apostles who have now... Uh, had their misgivings about Peter's dirtying his hands down there with the Gentiles overcome and silenced. They were silenced about, by Peter. Luke comments like this in verse 18. These apostles glorified God saying, well, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. That was their conclusion. Of the right one. Now, what does that mean? It means that Cornelius' household, who are the Gentiles being spoken about here, repented. And when they repented, they got life. Eternal life came through repentance. They, God granted them repentance unto life. Which means that before they repented, and before God had brought them to that point of repenting before the gospel, they didn't have life. And so for those four reasons, I conclude that Cornelius was not saved, justified, reconciled, born again in the family of God before he heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. Now that leads to the second question. 
what does it mean? What, what does it mean when Peter says, in every nation, one who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him? Before they hear about Jesus. And what does this have to do with racist tendencies and ethnocentric dispositions and commitments to world evangelization? My first thought in trying to solve this problem of what this verse means is that, well, it probably simply means what that vision was all about. Namely, um, the people being spoken of here in verse 35 are not common. They're not unclean. They are acceptable candidates for evangelism and empathy and compassion and association to draw them into the kingdom. Not that they're saved, but they are not common or unclean or unworthy of being pursued. That's, that's probably what it means. That's not what it means. And what stopped me from thinking that that's what it means is verse 28. Peter is explaining to Cornelius and the others why he was willing to come. And this is what he says. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me. This is the vision. now. God has shown me that I should not call any man. Anyone, common or unclean. In other words, Christians are not to look down their noses at any ethnic group, any race, and uh, say, uh, you're unfit to hear the gospel from me, or you're too unclean for me to go into your house and share the gospel, or you're not worth evangelizing, or you've got too many offensive habits for me even to get near you. That's what Peter has learned he's not supposed to say about anybody. And that last word, anybody, is what stopped me from applying this to verse 35. Now notice, verse 28 again. Let's get this right. This is a powerful, powerful word for our day. God has shown me that I should not call any human being common or unclean. And the meaning of that is no racial, no ethnic, no cultural, no physical distinctives are to cut me off from anybody when I'm showing love. Nobody is ruled out as a candidate for my compassion and my love and my evangelism and my labors by virtue of their race or by virtue of their ethnic connections, or by virtue of their cultural associations, or by virtue of their physical distinctives. Nobody is to be cut off from me. They're not to be called common or unclean in that sense. And so everybody is a candidate for evangelism and compassion and ministry and justice. Powerful word for our day. That's not what verse 35 means. Do you see why it isn't? Verse 35 does not say everybody. It says, in every nation. Note that phrase, in. In every nation, 
Anyone who fears him, God, and does what is right is acceptable to God. It does not say everybody's acceptable in this sense. And so this acceptability can't be the acceptability of verse 28 or the vision. The point of the vision was, don't you call any human being, no matter what, common or unclean. Verse 28 says that very clearly. This verse 35 says, among every people group, some are fearing God and doing right. And those people, among all the other acceptable, clean and non-common people, are acceptable. So what does that mean? Basically, what we've got so far is two things it doesn't mean. This is helpful, though. It's in between somewhere, I think. Over here, it does not mean that they're saved. My first point. Over here, it does not mean everybody. It means some kind of God-fearing, some kind of right-doing that makes a person in some sense acceptable that's not saved. What is that? Here's my suggestion. Cornelius represents kind of unsaved person who is seeking God in an extraordinary way. And Peter is saying, God accepts this search and responds to it. In Cornelius' case, the response is an angel who comes and speaks. In fact, look at verse 31 to confirm that we're on the right track here. In verse 31, Cornelius is saying what the angel said to him. That's very important. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. You could say accepted. Heard, accepted. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, underline that logical connector, it's very important. Therefore, send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. Now, let's just get the connection here. He's praying. His prayer is accepted and heard. Therefore, an angel comes and says, go get Peter. Now, what do you think the prayer was then? He prays and the angel says, all right, your prayer's been heard. Go get Peter. What's the prayer for then? I think the prayer went something like this. And this is an expression of what verse 35 means by God-fearing. I think Cornelius, when he prayed, sounded something like this. God, I know you're there. I look at the world and I know you're there. And I know you are a holy God. My conscience bears witness that you have a law and that you're pure, that you have standards. And I know that I have fallen short. I can't even live up to my own standards. I'm a sinner. Sure, I try and I do many right things. I learn from the Jews. But Lord God, if there's not a way to solve my sin, I'm terrified at what the future holds. God, isn't there an answer? Isn't there a way? Show me the truth. Get me salvation. I think that's the way to pray. Something like that. And when God looked down and saw that, verse 35 says he accepted it. Accepted it. 
And in accepting it, he began to work in a most remarkable way on behalf of this man. It's not always necessarily going to work in this way, but I think during this missions week, God means to call some Peters and connect them with some Corneliuses in this church. I really believe that if we pray and ask God to let the sheets down at Bethlehem and to pray for unreached peoples in the USSR and around the world, that there's going to be some remarkable divine coordination going on in the next several years. And God will listen and hear the prayers where he has been begetting by grace a groping, as it says in Acts 17, a groping if perchance they might find the truth. Here's my conclusion. There are two lessons in this passage for us today. One is that no human being should be called common or unclean. No matter the race, no matter the ethnic origin, no matter the cultural connections, no matter the physical distinctives, no human being should be called common or unclean. Verse 28, crystal clear. That means... Let us get out of our mouths all racial slurs. Let us get out of our minds every kind of ethnic illusion that is a put down. Let's get off our hands, off our hands, all behaviors that are offensive. Let's have absolutely nothing to do with white supremacist movements on the university campus. Rather, let us by our mouths and by our minds and by our hands be the light of the world and the salt of the earth and say no to these kinds of outcroppings of corruption. That's the first lesson in this text. It's a very powerful one, a very relevant one in a day of increased racism and ethnocentricity. The second lesson is a very hopeful one regarding missions to get us started in Missions Week, Missions Fest. Did you notice the, the phrase, every nation, in verse 35? In every nation, God is at work, God is moving, stirring, bringing people to the point of acceptable prayer. And what hope should rise in our hearts that there are people now all over the world like Cornelius, groping towards the light. And when they pray like Cornelius prayed, God is going to say, acceptable. And down in Minneapolis or some other place where the people of God are meeting, a sheet will be let down. A sheet will be let down and you will know the new lesson, the new direction for your life. And I'm praying that that's what God's going to do during Missions Fest 1991. And so here's my closing exhortation. Be this week a good Samaritan for some despised outcast. Be a Christ for some leper. And be a Peter for some Cornelius. If not today. By obedience to the call, perhaps in a year or five years. Now, as we close, I want to invite the people who are going to pray here at the front with you. Just join me here and line up across the front. I want them to come before you bow your heads so you can see they're real human beings. Not common, 
not unclean, and therefore eager to pray with you, human beings, with all your diversity that's created by God. And uh, if you brought into this service any burden that you would like somebody to take into the hands of prayer and hand over to God for you, or if I have said something that touched you, they just love to pray with you. Let's bow. Almighty God, you've been at work here. I can tell some people are being drawn away from some deceitful attitudes that had tripped them up for a while. No, oh, save, Lord. Grant that we would hear the news that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only hope. And what a great, wonderful responsibility is on us to take it and to take him. Lord, lift the burdens of your people. Free them from their sicknesses, from their depressions, from their discouragements, from the brokenness of their relations, from the hostilities, from ethnocentrism and racism and fears and small vision. Lord, do a mighty work here as we close this service, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.